church. We, uh, I hope you're warm and, and safe at home. I want to invite you uh, right where you're at to uh, take a Bible or get something where you can turn with us to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 today, thinking about the gift of sex and the gift of singleness. I, you know, we're walking through uh, 1 Corinthians, and uh, I didn't plan this to work for Valentine's Day, but it's certainly appropriate for the day. Um, I was reading a book by Alan and Deb Hirsch called Untamed. Untamed is about the church having a, a missionary heart and being able to reach into the culture with the message of the gospel and with the Christian worldview. And uh, there's a chapter in the book called Untamed about um, being too sexy for the church. And in that chapter, they talk about uh, the Christian and the church needing to be able to talk about God's intent for sex. In that chapter, here's something they write. That many Christians continue to struggle with even talking about sexuality should be of concern. Not talking about it hasn't helped our case at all. Many Christian young people rely predominantly on sources other than the church to learn about their sexuality. And we find it amusing that while some of God's people are ignorant, anxious, and embarrassed to talk about all things sexual, God clearly is not. He is the creator and the designer of sexuality. Pastor Matt Chandler, in a sermon on this same topic, he joked and he said, It's almost as if the Christian view of sex is, it's dirty, it's vile, it's inappropriate, it's immoral, so save it for the one that you love the most, your spouse. Before we dive into uh, the message and, and the heart of the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to talk about, uh, just briefly, some of the reasons why this topic is important for a sermon for the whole church. Of course, uh, we're recording this and, and there's just three people in the sanctuary, so it makes it maybe a little less embarrassing or uh, blush-worthy here in the sanctuary. I got a text this morning and asked if the sermon was going to still be rated PG. And I said, well, since there's not many people going to be there, I think it'll, I'll bump it up to PG-13. But that becomes one of the issues is sometimes we feel like this is too embarrassing or a topic that we should not address from the pulpit. But let me start off with some reasons why we need to talk about this and think about it together. First of all, it's God's word. And we are told as teachers and preachers to preach the whole counsel of God's word. And it's profitable. Uh, it was profitable back then when it was first written. It's profitable to us today. Uh, some of our adult Sunday school teachers recently taught through the book of Song of Solomon and we kind of laughed about how much they blushed and turned red and things like that and I thought if those folks can get through the entire book of the Song of Solomon surely I can endure it and you can endure it for one week from the pulpit today. The writing that we're studying today is not just some prudish overly moralistic preacher that's trying to gain control of the minds and lives of, of church members. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians in, in large measure to answer very specific questions that the church, that the Christians were asking him. And, and these people were trying to wisely, as we should do, trying to live out the gospel and live out their theology in all areas of life, including their intimate lives as husband and as wife, in the midst of a culture that was very confused about sexuality. In the same way, we live in a culture 
that is really sex obsessed. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of justification for things that are not biblical. There is a lot of sin in the sexual realm. And it's good for us to go to the Bible and hear and dwell on and meditate on a biblical perspective of sexuality. I'm amazed how relevant the Bible is even today. Written this passage 2,000 years ago, let's say, still relevant today. Last week as we were looking at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and we were dealing with uh, Paul teaching about um, prostitution and how inappropriate that is. Just a day later, I was scrolling through a news feed and I came upon an advice column and the headline was something like to the effect of um, help. My husband and I have agreed to have an open marriage and he wants to see prostitutes. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how relevant the Bible still is today. People are confused and they're struggling in all areas of life, including and especially in sex. Disagreements and problems with a couple's intimate life, frankly with sex, is one of the leading causes of marital discord and of divorce. We know this is an important topic. I heard that there is somewhere around 200,000 titles on Amazon dealing with the issue of sex. If you think it's not important, consider that. God created us both as sexual beings and as spiritual beings, not one or the other. Both are important to our personhood and the way that God designed us. Actually, uh, Eugene Peterson, he wrote this, Sex and religion are intricately interwoven because they're dealing with the basic elements of intimacy and the stuff of ecstasy. One of the key problems for the Christian through the ages has been a mistaken belief that sexuality opposes or stands over against spirituality. Or to think that the more spiritual we become, the less sexual we should become. And that is just not the case. And in fact, it's probably that mistaken and harmful dualistic view that we've talked about all through our study of 1 Corinthians that very well could be part of the problem in Corinth that Paul now has to address. So let's read and think together about 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7 as we consider the gift of sex and the gift of singleness. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. One of the difficulties of understanding and rightly applying 1 Corinthians 7 is 
at the end of verse 1, this little phrase, it says, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. The question is, who said that? <laughs> is that... Is that Paul saying it in writing here for the first time? It's possible that your translation of the Bible has quotation marks around that. Now, it's very possible that those are Paul's unique words at this moment as he's writing. Many people see it that way. And that could square with the entire tenor of the passage. But as I read that, and as I've always read it that way in the past before I studied this in depth, it seemed to me that Paul was saying that really it's good if you don't have sex. Really, it's probably best. It's a good thing. It's a very good thing. I don't actually think that's what's going on here. It's possible that this is something that Paul has said in the past as he's taught the Corinthians, but they've misunderstood it and misapplied it. And so now he's coming and bring, bringing more teaching on the subject. It's possible that the words, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, was another of the Corinthian slogans or sayings that is theologically incorrect. That's led them to a wrong practice. And now Paul is going to address it. And that's what I think ultimately is true of this text. I think that's something that people were saying in Corinth and they were living it out and it's problematic. If the Corinthians have taken this position, it's good if a man doesn't touch a woman. They're saying, really, it would be best if we all become ascetics and we live a celibate lifestyle, whether we're married or not married. And we know that actually in the early church, that is something that was widely taught and practiced. The Corinthians possibly had adopted this motto. There was a movement uh, of, quote unquote, super spiritual people in Corinth. They were called the people of the spirit. Specifically, many of the women in Corinth had adopted this motto and had become women of the Spirit. They had adopted this dualistic view that if we're going to be truly spiritual and pure in religion, then we need to do away with sex, even though we're married. And so, as you read through 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you see that people were threatening divorce in the church. They were wanting to end their marriages. They were wanting, wanting to cut off their engagements and things like that. Because they believed, possibly, that they could not be religiously pure and still participate in sex. And Paul is going to speak into that. Some have looked into this uh, the situation in Corinth and just said this. There was a great famine in the land. Actually, several famines occurred around the time that this letter was written. And some people see that the people are just practicing uh, sexual abstinence. As a form of birth control, because there may have been poverty and there was a shortage of food. I don't think that's a tenable position uh, if you read all of 1 Corinthians, so I'm not going to take that position. But here's another thing. Some people just believe that possibly that Jesus was about to come back. And they understood that the Bible teaches that in the resurrection, in the afterlife, if you will, that there is not marriage nor giving in marriage. And so they sought to absolve their marriage as they were waiting for Jesus to come again. Regardless of how you understand it. And I think understanding those things is important. It's very clear that sex is a good gift in this passage. And so let's start there. And I entitled the sermon, The Gift of Sex and the Gift of Singleness. Because I think that we need to... Hold those things in tension. We need to realize that sex is a good gift, 
but it's not the only gift. It's not the ultimate gift. Paul says in verse 7 that there is also another kind of gift, the gift of singleness. That's a good gift as well, and so we'll consider both today. But as we think about the gift of sex, the first thing I want to stress to you that is that sex is a good gift from God to a husband and to a wife. Sex is a good gift from God to a husband and his wife. It's a natural part of marriage. It's part of the expectation. It's part of the longing. It's part of the hope. It's part of the commitment. As I officiate weddings, and you can think about the vows that people often give. Think about this. Do you give yourself to this man? Do you give yourself to this woman to have and to hold? So far in all of the weddings that I've done, no one's ever said, I'll take part of that, but leave the other part aside. No, it's a commitment that we make when we say I do, that we are giving ourselves to one another. And sexual fulfillment is part of that expectation in marriage. It's so prominent as an expectation in marriage. Look at what verse 3 says. He said, it's a duty. It's a responsibility that we have. Part of our marital responsibility then is sexual fulfillment. Some people take the view uh, that, that you cannot get that from this passage. In fact, this passage refutes that clearly. So let me just say, sex is a good gift from God to a husband and to a wife. It's to be embraced. It's to be understood as a marital responsibility. But second of all, look at this. Sex is meant to be a good gift from the husband to the wife. And from the wife to her husband. There are a lot of reasons why and how marital intimacy gets bogged down. But I think that one of the key problems where sexual intimacy becomes problematic, even in a marriage, especially in a marriage, is that we begin to view sex, or maybe we've always viewed sex primarily as self-gratification. In other words, it's a selfish thing. Instead of a giving, it's a taking. And I would argue that in our culture, that is the primary view of sex. It's about me getting what I want. We have the epidemic of pornography in this country. And all of the self-gratification that comes with pornography. If you understand sex as being a gift to the other, rather than self-consumption, you would not participate in porno pornography. You see, it's a wrong view to think that self, uh, sex is about self-gratification. And Paul wisely confronts this wrong belief and this tendency in both of the spouses. There, there's an equality here that, that Bible scholars say this is amazing. Normally, it's all about the husband, about man's rights at the time in which Paul wrote. And Paul is holding up and he's saying equal rights here. Let's talk about the husband and let's talk about the wife. Let's talk about the needs and the expectations of both. And he does that with great symmetry. But look at how he confronts the selfish tendency. And he says, if, if you're viewing sex from a self-centered standpoint, you need a correction. And he said, husbands, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to her. Wives, your body does not belong to just to you, but also to him. 
you have vowed to become one, to give of yourself to the other. I don't think that Paul is condoning shaming the other into sex or demanding, hey, 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 the apostle Paul says that your body belongs to me, so you'll do what I want. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying we should be ready as Christian husbands and wives to give of ourselves to the other for the good of the other, for the joy of the other. And like with any giving, we find that it is blessed, more blessed, Jesus says, to give than to receive. And it's at this point when we understand sex as a joyful giving of ourselves to another, a mutual intimacy, and as Eugene Peterson said, ecstasy, and the self-giving that is really at the heart of the gospel. It's when we come at this most intimate relationship that we truly portray, I believe, the gospel. And that is to say what Ephesians 5 says, that the relationship between husband and wife is a picture. It's this mysterious parable played out millions and millions of times over history. And in our time and in our household, it is a picture of the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus completely, fully, bodily gave of himself, sacrificed his self and his body for us, for our life, for our salvation. And the church, those who see the beautiful groom, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed of himself, for us we accept and we come to him and we become one with him and we submit ourselves to him as our lord and so there is the giving of the groom and there is the giving of the bride of christ that is the picture of the gospel and is to be played out in marriage not only in sex but in sex that is to be the viewpoint it's not about self it's about the other and so sex is a good gift from God to the husband and wife. Sex is a good gift to be given from the husband to the wife, from the wife to the husband. Finally, as we think about the gift of sex, sex is a practical gift. It's a practical gift, which is to say there are pragmatic things that it does. There are powerful and practical purposes. And Paul gives us some of these. But listen, sometimes I think we think like, Sex is like um, a box of chocolates on Valentine's Day, right? Really, I mean, it expresses something, but it's probably not a real useful gift. It's probably actually a gift that does more harm. Oh, sure, it satisfies a uh, craving in our sweet tooth, but we don't really need those. They're not really good for us. Some people view sex that way. Sex is not like a box of chocolates on Valentine's Day. I would argue that it's more like this. I would argue that sex is, in some ways, like this beautiful coat. Now, it may not look beautiful to you. It looks beautiful to me. It's a nice navy coat. This was actually a gift from my wife. And I don't know if you ventured out yet today, but there is probably not a more useful gift today than a coat. If you're going to venture out, I dare say that you're going to have a covering like this. This was an extremely practical gift from my wife to me. I love this coat. I save it for church. I try not to get it dirty. It's not my work coat. It's my go to 
church meeting code. So extremely practical. What are the practical ramifications? What are the practical purposes of sex? Let's think about that. Let's look in this teaching together about that. I see at least three. Three practical purposes, powerful things that sustaining the intimate relationship through sex, husband and wife, will do. Look at this. First of all, sex is like a lifeboat for two in an ocean of sexual immorality. If you look at verse 2, he says, because of immoralities, that is, we are surrounded on every side. It was true then, it's true today, by all sorts of temptations and things that come at us that we may not even be expecting. It, and it's out there over and over every day we face all sorts of little things. We may face different kinds of uh, temptations to immorality in the sexual realm. But I love that picture that, that the sexual relationship between a husband and wife is like a lifeboat for two in an ocean of sexual immorality. In other words, it's a way that helps us to maintain our marital purity in an ocean of sexual immorality. So it helps us because there's so much immorality, Paul says, out and around. If you're married, God has given you this gift as a way to fight against it, to not succumb to it. Secondly, it's a special and practical physical expression of our love. Love is practical. There are ways that we show it. It's one thing to just say to someone, I love you. But if you never do anything, to show it. Probably your words are not true. And I would just say that sex is a practical, physical expression. It is a deep and unique and special, unlike any other physical expression of your love. And it's important. It's not everything. It's not ultimate. But it is important in marriage. Third, I see it as a couple's weapon of spiritual warfare this is easy to overlook, but look at what he says in verse uh, 5. He says, come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan loves to get a hold of people in this area. And it's really uh, devastating in the world today and in our country today. And listen, even in the Christian realm, we're seeing Every day, people falling to sexual temptation. And Satan is at the root of it. And so this is, that is the sexual act within marriage, is a spiritual weapon of warfare. Verse 5 is, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together. To thwart this attack. Seminary pres president. Southern Baptist. Um, seminary president. Out at Southeastern. A guy named Danny Aiken. He wrote this helpful little guideline. I want to give you this. I read this this week. About this idea of stop depriving one another. Here's what he says. Sexual relations are other oriented. Right? They're not, they're not selfish. And as such. No exact formula can be prescribed, but the biblical principle is that there is to be adequate satisfaction such that burning sexual desires and temptations 
are safeguarded against. I think that's a wise way of looking at this. He doesn't give rules. Every couple's different. Every person is different. But he said if if sex is really something that we view as being other-oriented for our spouse, then there will be adequate sexual contact such that one person is not continually burning with desire. And listen, it's not just the women. It's not just the men. Sexual desire and temptation can come to both. And so we are to fight against that together using sex as a spiritual weapon of warfare. So that's just a practical teaching in this passage. But one thing that's interesting that I didn't know what to do with in this passage. Paul says, you know, you should come together. Sex should be a regular part of your relationship. Except, he says, there are times when if by agreement you would abstain. Well, why, why would we do that, Paul? What, what would be the purpose? He says, for prayer. To devote yourselves to prayer. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm looking at that and going, Paul, I think I've got time for both. I, I, I just, I don't see the, the, the conflict here. What's going on? So I've been, I've been really thinking. I'm serious about this. I've been thinking about that. What, what do you mean? What, what is he talking about? You know, marriage relationships are difficult. They just are. They're highly fraught. I mean, I mean, we come together as one, two who have been distinct. We come with different past, different expectations, different levels of desire, different emotions. And we come together as one. And there are difficulties. And we're facing all kinds of things that we see and hear out in the culture. And we see the expectations laid on us by others. And then... You add into that your Christian faith. How does my Christian faith and my theology play into this? We've got all of these things coming at us. And and it can be difficult. We're going to fight about these things. We disagree about these things. Not only that. I think that as individuals, we know that we take on baggage. Where there has been sin in our life. We take on emotional baggage baggage of the spirit and of the soul baggage of the heart and we bring that brokenness into a marriage and we should expect that there is difficulty if if it's not normal for there to be difficulty in the sexual relationship of a husband and wife why would Paul even be writing these things but think about this Paul has just said stop depriving one another deprive that wrote where it can be translated robbing. Stop robbing one another of your responsibility in this realm, except for a time that you might both agree to come together for prayer. Why would you need prayer? Well, here's the thing. If you don't see that, if we don't deal with that in this passage, we just hear Paul basically given a mechanical solution to what may very well be an emotional problem. In other words, he says, stop depriving each other. Just figure it out. Have sex as a couple. Problem solved. I don't think it's that easy. Sex is not just a mechanical, physical, anatomical action. It's tied to our very hearts, our emotions, our minds, our very souls. There are feelings. There are hurts. There are wrongs. That have occurred between husband and wife. And maybe even outside of that. And I think what's going on here. 
as Paul says, you know, sometimes there are things that go on in a marriage that we don't even know are going on until we see problems in the marriage bed. And that becomes like the tip of the iceberg that's sticking out of the water. But beneath that is a much larger problem. Spiritual problems could be lack of forgiveness. Someone has really hurt the other. There are things in the past that we're grappling with. And I think that when we see uh, sexual tensions and problems in the marriage bed, sometimes they're just not that easy to fix. And I think what Paul is teaching here is that sometimes we need to just say, hey, for a season, let's, let's not think about that. Let's think about what and pray about and seek God's hand in his healing in this area where we're hurting in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls. Because sex is ultimately a very intimate thing and you can't fix problems of the soul just through sexual acts. Sometimes there needs to be healing. There needs to be forgiveness. There needs to be maybe repentance. And as always with these issues, there needs to be great patience and caution. And we need to think not just with our bodies and our desires, but think spiritually about the good of the other. Sex is indeed a good gift from God for spouses, two spouses, but it's not the only gift. And it's not a necessity for living a fulfilled life. Hey folks, marriage is about so much more than sex. And so is the Christian life. And so Paul comes in verses 6 through 7 to say sex is a gift, but it is not the only gift. There is also, he doesn't, maybe God's intent is that a person does not pursue marriage. It could be ever. Or it could be that a person finds themselves in a stage in life where sex is not an option, marriage is not an option, and so instead they are to embrace God's plan of singleness, at least for the time. It's interesting to, to ponder whether Paul was never married. Some say that. It's probably unlikely that he would be a Pharisee if he had not been married. Maybe he is a widower. Maybe his wife has left him. We don't actually know. But what we know, at least we assume from this, is that he was not married at that time. And so, he says, I wish that all of you were at, like me. That is, he has embraced the single life at this point in his life. And I think for the rest of his life, it was his expectation that he would be single. I think that many people see the gift of singleness like the gift of leprosy. Uh, like something that is to be avoided and we hope that we don't ever face that. But not Paul. Actually, you see, he esteems this gift highly. He says, I wish that all of you were like me. Paul viewed his singleness as a great freedom and opportunity to serve the Lord wholeheartedly without any other distractions. And so he says, I wish talked about talk about the gift of singleness near enough. We don't uphold it as a unique gift from God. Now, we have to deal with it. Is the gift of singleness something that you always have? Probably not. For some it may be. There are just some people that... that it just appears that God has not given them any desire whatsoever for marriage and for sex. And so, maybe it is a lifelong gift 
Probably more likely what we find is it is seasons of life. Hey, listen, if you're not married, using it could be that you now are widowed. You're a widower. It could be that you're divorced. What are you supposed to do with that? Understand that in this season in your life, God has given you the gift of singleness. And the culture looks at singleness more and more. Actually, many people in the culture see it as a good thing. They say, man, I'm totally free to do what I want with my time, with my money. I don't have to answer to anybody. Unfortunately, the culture sees it often, the gift of singleness, as a way just to sleep around and do whatever you want sexually. But the gift of singleness would preclude sexual activity altogether. For Paul, singleness wasn't about getting to play the field or do whatever he wanted. It was a way to wholeheartedly serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me say this to you in closing. Sex is not the only gift. It's not the ultimate gift. And if you never experience it, you'll be okay. If you never experience it again, you'll be okay. Singleness is not the ultimate gift. I'll tell you what the ultimate gift is. It's being united with Jesus Christ. It's salvation. And in salvation, just like the sexual act portrays, we actually become united. We become as one with Jesus Christ. We come into a communion into a relationship that will last forever. Hey, listen. There is no marriage nor giving in marriage. But there is love. And there is communion. And there is intimacy. Primarily, it's with Jesus Christ. So the best gift, the greatest gift, is Jesus. And the gift of sex and the gift of singleness can point us towards that ultimate gift. Let me pray for us as we close. I pray that y'all will stay safe. That you'll enjoy your Valentine's Day. Whether you're married. Whether you're single. Hey, if you're single. Instead of buying something for uh, your uh, sweetheart. You can give extra offering here at the church. How about that? No, just kidding. I'm just kidding. But let me pray for us as we close. Father, today we're thankful. For your good gifts that you scatter abroad. And there's not just one gift, there are a multitude. There are many gifts and you sovereignly choose how you distribute them according to your will. But today, we're thankful. We're thankful for the gift of love, most of all. The love of Jesus given to us. The opportunity to come into this sweet and enduring relationship with you. We're thankful also for the gift of marriage, for the gift of sex within marriage. Lord, and I'm thankful too for the gift of singleness. For those who follow you with all of their hearts without the distraction of these things. Whatever, Lord, your will is for us, help us to see the good in it, the gifting in it, and embrace it with joy. Pray that you'd be with us this week. Lord, today I want to pray for every marriage and every relationship. That as folks have listened to this message and listened to your word, God, I pray that you would bring a healing, 
that you would maybe bring a restoration of the heart. That you would bring a restoration where there is brokenness in the marriage bed. Pray that you would bring healing and communion back to marriages where they are suffering. Lord, do this by your spirit, by your word, and by our submission to your word. That we give you praise for your goodness, for your grace, and your kindness in all of its beauty. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.